You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. In Boca Chica, SpaceX's Starship is fully stacked yet again. And will they get the FAA okay to launch for another flight test by the end of this month? Who knows? And on the Space Coast, three mystery launches are scheduled this week. And if we pull off the mask Scooby-Doo style on who's doing the launching... Let's just see who you really are, mister. Is it the Department of Defense under there? Who's to say? Jinkies! Space sure is shrouded in mystery. Today is September 6th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazas, and this is T-Minus. out of the Cape this week. What's the payload on China's Long March 4C? Will SpaceX launch the Starship soon? And our guest today is Starfish Space Director of Strategic Relationships, Michael Madrid, with the incredible story of how Starfish Space brought the otter pup back from the brink. It's so back. You do not want to miss this one. Let's dive into the Intel briefing for today. Mysteries abound at the Space Coast this week, and I promise I won't keep the Scooby-Doo thing going. There are three launches scheduled this week, but the usual suspects say they're not on deck. SpaceX, ULA, and NASA, none of them have launches scheduled at Cape Canaveral this week. So filling in the blanks here, the rather safe assumption is that the U.S. Department of Defense is doing some work this week. And yeah, speculation abounds. Florida Today reports that at least one of the launches happening, perhaps today, in fact, is likely to be a weapons test, actually, a hypersonic missile, to be precise. A test earlier this year in March by the DOD for hypersonic capabilities was scrubbed, according to Florida Today. So given the mysterious nature of the launch windows this week, it's speculation, but still a decently educated guess that perhaps the DOD is giving things another go. And speaking of mysterious launches... 
Sometime today from Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center in China, an unknown payload is launching on a Long March 4C. I know, an unknown payload going to an unknown orbit for an unknown mission. Real illuminating, T-minus. And another launch mystery to add here. You take a Booster 9 and add a Ship 25 on top, put it all together at Boca Chica, Texas, and you get another Starship. The biggest and most powerful rocket in the world with the grand hopes of revolutionizing access to orbit, the moon and beyond, ready for a second test flight. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk says the ship is ready to go for its flight test, fingers crossed an orbital one this time, but there is that little matter of FAA approval that SpaceX doesn't have yet, and there's no way to know when it's coming. So while SpaceX enthusiasts are saying it's happening at the end of this month, that's still just conjecture until the FAA chimes in. Of course, if and when the FAA approval comes, we will be sure to update you with the confirmed flight test and time. And tonight at 7.42 p.m. Eastern Time, or tomorrow morning at 8.42 a.m. in Japan, JAXA's giving the CRISM launch another try. The CRISM, or X-ray Imaging and Spectroscopy Mission, is a JAXA collaboration with NASA and contributions from ESA, and will be attempting to launch on an H-2A rocket from Japan's Tanegashima Space Center after an earlier attempt resulted in a scrub. The rocket will also be carrying the slim lunar lander. So best of luck to JAXA on the launch today. Voyager Space has announced the successful installation of a new self-built payload called Gambit to its Bishop airlock on the International Space Station. The Bishop airlock launched in December 2020 and is the first permanent commercial addition to the ISS. The addition features six external payload sites. One of Gambit's primary goals is to serve as a testing platform to demonstrate robotic transfer and installation processes at these external sites. Gambit was transported to the ISS on the NG-19 cargo mission earlier this year and completed its installation on August the 28th. SES Space and Defense has been awarded a multi-year contract by the U.S. Air Force Research Lab to conduct a series of tests to integrate space broadband services across a multi-orbit satellite network in support of the DOOSY program. Now, DOOSY stands for Defense Experimentation Using Commercial Space Internet Program and is intended to establish communications with military platforms via multiple commercial space internet constellations in geostationary orbit, medium-Earth orbit, and low-Earth orbit, or GEO, MEO, and LEO. It uses a common user terminal with the ability to alternate between space broadband providers. SES did not disclose the contract value. Terran Orbital has unveiled a new lineup of seven standard satellite bus platforms. The new bus platforms span nano, micro, mini, and small classes of satellites. Terran Orbital's new lineup of satellite configurations are derived from the company's prior experience with nanosatellites and its microsatellite bus, designed and built for the U.S. Space Development Agency's recently launched Tranche Zero transport layer mission and the coming Tranche One mission. Earth observation companies Wyvern and Loft Orbital are partnering to expand the coverage of the Dragonet satellite constellation. Wyvern says the partnership will provide them with the seamless access to on-orbit satellites that gather the hyperspectral data that the company's customers need. Wyvern plans to use the observation time on LOFT's hyperspectral mission, which is due to launch in 2024. 
Now, if you listen to yesterday's show, then you'll likely remember that the European Space Agency was hosting a hot fire of the Ariane 6 as we went to air. The test was held at Europe's spaceport in French Guiana. The vehicle's Vulcan 2.1 engine fired for four seconds as planned and switched off before its liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen fuels were drained to their separate underground tanks. This test was a continuation of an earlier dress rehearsal held in July. The Ceres 1Y1 carrier rocket lifted off from a platform in the Yellow Sea off the coast of China's Shandong province yesterday. The vehicle carried four satellites into an 800-kilometer orbit in a mission named the Little Mermaid. This was the first sea launch by commercial space venture Galactic Energy, making the company the first private Chinese enterprise carrying out both land and sea-based launches. And we'll close out our Intel briefing for today with some NASA contract news. First, Astrobotic has started work on two NASA small business innovation research contracts to further research on lunar plume surface interactions. Hmm. And the second announcement comes from Solstar Space, which has received a Phase 2 small business innovation research contract valued at over $1.2 million for the development of its critical data relay spacecraft operational status. We've included further reading on all of the stories that we've covered today in our show notes. And we've added a few extra on the U.S. Space Force that we think you might find interesting. You can find all of these stories and more at space.n2k.com and just click on this episode. Hey, T-Minus crew, if you find this podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and short review in your favorite podcast app. That will help other space professionals like you find the show and join the T-Minus crew. Thank you so much for your support. We all really appreciate it. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Starfish Space's Director of Strategic Relationships, Michael Madrid, telling us the story about how the otter pup was saved. To start the story, Michael first sets the stage with an overview of the evolution of the otter pup itself. Starfish is a venture-backed startup based here in the Seattle area uh, that's building a spacecraft called the Otter. Uh, and the Otter is built for satellite servicing missions. So, for example, in geostationary orbit, we could dock with large commsats and do mission extension or life extension. In low Earth orbit, we talk a lot about end-of-life disposal for derelict satellites or debris remediation. And so, uh, to do those missions, we've developed capture hardware that can uh, dock with anything in space with unprepared surfaces that don't have uh, specific docking plates or features. And we've developed a lot of flight software to do autonomous uh, rendezvous proximity operations and docking, or RPOD. Uh, and relative navigation and things like that. And so 
as a tech demonstration, we built a smaller version of the spacecraft called Otter Pup uh, that has notably full-scale uh, versions of our capture mechanism, all of our flight software. And we wanted to go to space and test those pieces of technology by doing a, a docking demonstration with a commercial partner, somebody else's satellite. And we uh, built this spacecraft in about, well, just under 20 months and for around $8 million that we'd raised in a seed round at that point. So we were really excited to to get that spacecraft built and delivered to SpaceX. And we launched in June. And we launched on board uh, an OTV, an orbit transfer vehicle, as uh, many of these rideshare missions kind of work out. And we were uh, one of a couple payloads. And we were excited to partner with that company. And we were also going to do our docking demonstration with that OTV. We were going to deploy from it, gain some distance, commission, do some tests, and then fly a rendezvous back to it and do all of our docking tests. Um, and unfortunately, uh, there was just an anomaly um, on board the OTV shortly after release from the Falcon 9. Um, and to the great credit of the team there, when they made contact with their spacecraft and discovered it was starting to rotate very quickly, they uh, made a fast decision to emergency deploy um, their payloads, including Otter Pup. And so that gave us a shot at, uh, at saving the mission, got us free flying, uh, notably about a week earlier than planned. And... Uh, <laughs> And rotating uh, with that with those same speeds, um, and so we were rotating uh, very quickly, and uh, <laughs> it was an exciting time. It was an exciting time. I was going to say uh, you've had a very busy summer, probably not busy in the way you wanted, uh, but after you all found out about the rotation, um, that was I know a lot of us when we read the update, we were all kind of heartbroken for you guys, but you were also were so determined. That was what was really amazing was hearing like we're gonna we're gonna figure something out. So, okay, I'm going to ask, what happened next after after all that? Well, how did you get that mission plan together? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's just the the DNA of the company. I think the it was amazing to watch everybody at Starfish um, really keep their heads up and really get excited about tackling a challenge. I think, you know, from our co-founders, Austin and Trevor, uh, down to every part of the organization, we try to be really realistic and practical. And so we know something's going to go wrong with a, with a space mission, especially the first one. And it's just a matter of, figuring out what's going to go wrong and tackling it. Um, and notably, I think we had uh, also great support from our partners. Um, the OTV uh, operators were quick to both handle the uh, anomaly and then also to communicate with us and to share data with us and help us understand where the spacecraft was. Our satellite bus, the Otter Pup bus, was built by a company called Astro Digital down in Silicon Valley, and they're a mission partner uh, in flying it as well. And they were incredible to scramble ground stations to make contact with the spacecraft quickly. You know, notably, we picked up the you know UHF beacon within a couple hours, and then we were able to establish two-way communications. We we sent an uplink and then received back acknowledgement of that command. So we knew we had two-way communications with a satellite about 25 hours after launch. And uh, to your point, we just we got to work. I think it was that very night. Um, you know, people were in front of whiteboards. We were looking at you know alternative uh, partners to dock with. We were looking at how do we detumble the spacecraft? How do we make sure different parts of the spacecraft are all right? Um, and definitely the biggest priority up front was to figure out how to stop the rotation rates. And um, Otter Pup has, it does have a thruster, but it's body mounted along the major axis. And so it wasn't really going to play a large role in in slowing down the spin. We had, you know, spin around all three axes, but a lot of the spin around the major axis. Um, but we have these three torque rods on board. And basically we were looking to find a way to control them in a, in a, using novel algorithms that we sort of derive from first principles to use them in a, in a sort of contingency operation that they aren't normally required to be in and to, to use them and control them very quickly. Uh, as you're flying through the Earth's magnetic field, you're trying to control uh, the, the torque rods and how they're activated 
to respond to how you're passing through Earth's magnetic field to push off of that and to slow your rotation rate. If you get it wrong, you actually increase your rotation rate and you make yourself spin faster. Yay. <laughs> and there's a lot of challenges there too, just like to build a feedback cycle for the spacecraft where you're using the sensors, you're determining uh, your rotation. We were doing this without really clear knowledge of the spacecraft attitude. Uh, we were also notably battling um, a series of low power events. Luckily, when we started, we were power positive and we were able to determine the solar panels had deployed on the sides of Otter Pup. Uh, but if you imagine uh, the surface of those solar panels, they would end up knife edge onto the sun. And so that would drive us into a low power state, into safe mode uh, several times, and notably once uh, in July even browned out, which means we lost power to the flight computer. Uh, and so the flight computer shuts down and your spacecraft, you could never hear from it again. But thankfully, we, you know, from the de early design days, we had put small keep alive solar panels on different faces. Those were getting a little bit of current. You know, the spacecraft was able to come back. We were, we reestablished contact. We execute these emergency maneuvers that we had sort of defined again in partnership with Astro Digital and some of the other vendors. And so we would kind of kick Otter Pup into a more optimal orientation and get some sunlight back onto the solar panels and then wait and like charge up very slowly. And it was this game of like, well, do we execute a recovery maneuver or do we wait to charge? And how are we going to trade off the power usage of the sensors versus the actuators versus this system or that system? And uh, it was just, again, an incredible effort that I, uh, I lead our business development team. I was an aerospace engineering major <laughs> eight to 10 years ago, but um, just, you know, in awe watching um, everybody from, again, our co-founders uh, down to all of our engineers um, coming up with, you know, ways to control the satellites and then also really developing a fast pipeline to deploy what they would create um, onto the satellite on orbit. If you think about writing code and, and developing these algorithms, testing it in simulation, which we do a lot of at Starfish anyway, and then testing it on a flat sat, a flat satellite to, to really verify it, and then uplinking it. Sometimes these were even 90-minute cycles. You know, a satellite in low Earth orbit, you're, you're talking to it, uh, for example, every 90 to 95 minutes, and you would connect with it and downlink a bunch of telemetry, and you would go through that, analyze it, uh, try to understand what's happening, make some decisions about the next thing you want to test or try, you know, prepare those scripts, test them on a flat sat, and be uplinking them on the very next pass 90 minutes later uh, to the satellite, which is just, again, an incredible um, kind of cycle time that the engineering team adapted to. And so. It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and, you know, and you're in the middle of a crisis, no less, too. So it's like there's you know, time, no time to waste. Yeah, it, uh, it makes my job very easy. I, I get to just brag about uh, our engineering team and be really proud of them. So I think, you know, fast forwarding, it's kind of to your point, it was a team effort. It was a team effort with our mission partners. People had just an incredible attitude and, and resiliency uh, through this recovery effort. I remember even just coming in that later that week of launch and there was a little Otter Pup model that had been 3D printed and mounted on a motor. And that motor was uh, tagged to live telemetry so that the little model was spinning at a representative rate there on the ground <laughs> in our office. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, it was like almost that, like, you know, it was like what once a second almost, uh, essentially. At, <laughs> at the starting, yeah, the starting point here, we were rotating about 330 degrees per second. So you can that like a revolution a second. Um, but just, you know, that's one of my favorite just small anecdotes about how, uh, you know, people would really come together and and work hard through it. And we got to watch that, you know, slow down over time. And today it's still, it's not moving. <laughs> um, we were excited to announce this week that after all these recovery efforts, and specifically, there was an, an algorithm I've, I've been talking about us developing and testing. And, and when we did deploy it to the spacecraft, it really took the rotation rate down very quickly. 
And so uh, in early August, we were able to fully stabilize our pup. Um, we're sun pointing and in, in nominal conditions, normal operation modes. Uh, we're now stepping through sort of spacecraft commissioning and, and some of the typical processes you would do there. And I'll highlight the, the next two big steps for us. You know, first is to do the spacecraft health checks, make sure everything else is okay. Um, you know, there's definitely a possibility that other spacecraft systems that weren't meant to rotate very quickly for, for months, uh, we want to go make sure those are healthy. So setting that aside, then we also are looking at uh, an alternative uh, a docking partner so we can go and do the full demonstration we had uh, set out to do in the first place. And so hopefully those are the kinds of updates people can expect to hear from us in the coming weeks. That's extremely exciting. And uh, yes, congratulations to everybody who worked on this incredible rescue. What did y'all take away from this experience? You're right, because we're, we're continuing to take things away, and we probably will be for a long time. Well, I think there, there again was a lot of engineering development, a lot of technical development that I'm sure we'll, we'll explore different venues that we can kind of share with the technical community. Uh, the results of that are things that we learned along the way. Um, I think the team had to be, you know, very resourceful in how they operated the spacecraft. I know there were times where we were working with the vendors to understand subsystem code and how it works so we could work around different limitations or sort of normal ops configurations. And so that really, you know, involved some deep dives into uh, different parts of the spacecraft and and learning how to work around uh, different things there during contingency operations. And I think again, we really, you know, value and and uh, are just incredibly grateful for the people we got to work with uh, in this process. And again, I'll foot stomp, you know, Astro Digital. I remember, you know, early in the design and decision process for doing the Autopilot mission, we were excited to work with Astro Digital because. Uh, Hopefully they they uh, see this as a positive word. We felt like they were a fellow scrappy team, uh, and and what I mean by that is we felt like they would be in the trenches with us, you know, if it were ever needed and 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 when it counted. And this is when it counted. And oh boy, did they they did that in spades. They were with us every step of the way, going above and beyond. And so you know, definitely a big takeaway beyond any of the specific technical or engineering pieces is you know how incredible it is to have great relationships with your partners, with your vendors, with your customers. You know, people that we. Uh, work with in the government and commercial markets as customers have been incredibly supportive, offering ways to help, you know, checking in with us, seeing seeing what they can do to help. And uh, and just, you know, a lot of support from the community has been incredible while we're uh, on this journey. We'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome back. Were you doing a lot of home cooking during the worst of 2020? 
I know I was. And space was too. Kinda. Now this headline is all space geology. A meteorite found in the Sahara Desert in Algeria in 2020, named Ergchech002, is one of the oldest ever discovered space rocks, estimated to be about 4.6 billion years old. But the pictures, honestly, the pictures tell a little bit of a different story. I'll be honest, the meteorite is in the shape of a pie wedge, and it's egg whitish with bits of golden brown, flecked with bite-sized spinach-like bits of green crystals throughout. It looks like a slice of spinach quiche, is what I'm saying. (laughs) And a sliced cross-section of the meteorite kind of looks like slices of moldy bread. I swear, I'm not just hungry while looking at these photos. They really do look food-like. You can go see for yourself. Tell me if I'm crazy. Check it out in the link in our show notes. But please, do not attempt to eat the 4.6 billion-year-old space rock, everybody, as it holds some interesting clues to how planets like our own formed billions of years ago and how different elements, like those found in this meteorite, were distributed amongst rocky planets. So while some of us were making sourdough, this slice of quiche-like meteorite discovered in 2020 is helping us better understand what the early solar system looked like. That's it for T-minus for September 6th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in our show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.